Thank you for tuning in to the Identity and Me podcast. I'm your host, Stena. The featured guest for this episode is Courtney Shaw, who is a health instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy. Among other things, she's also an incredibly gifted interviewee, as you will soon see. I haven't said this to her yet, but she needs to have a podcast. As with the last several episodes, I'm joined by Dr. Sahoy Lee, who's a licensed clinical psychologist at the end of my conversation with Courtney to offer some additional insight about the theme of the episode. Enjoy. I'm here with Courtney Shaw, Courtney Church Shaw, actually. <laughs> oh. She got up in front of the seniors and faculty, started speaking, and uh, not too long into her address, she copped a lean. <laughs> and that's when I bestowed the nickname of Church okay. on Courtney. So she didn't know that then, now she knows Courtney Church Shaw. Welcome to Identity and Me, Courtney. Thank How's you. it going? It's going. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, what have you been up to this summer? Um, I'm actually working at the school um, during the summer. So teaching two health classes. I'm teaching a science of happiness course and also the pursuit of euphoria. Um, so a little unconventional classes that I'm teaching, but more or less having a lot of fun. Awesome. Good to hear. I took the summer off. I needed it. Lucky. I feel good. Lucky. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I love what I do, but it's a slight moment of regret and like, I'm still here. I hear you. Yeah. And during the school year, what do you do here? I also teach health. Okay. All right. How long have you been teaching health for? Let's see. Um, back here for a year now. I was here 10 years ago, took a break, worked for, you know, some government services, worked in Chicago doing some health education. So all in all, maybe like the last 10 years. Okay. So you actually say Chicago. You don't say the shy. No. Okay. No, because I'm I'm not originally from there, so I haven't earned that privilege. Ah, okay, all right, fair, fair. Uh, Courtney, before we proceed, how do you identify as a black woman in New Hampshire? Oh, okay, <laughs> we got to unpack that. You said a black woman in New Hampshire. Yeah. I haven't gotten that one yet. Yeah, tell me about that. It's a first. So, I mean, I think a lot of people, when you ask that question, is like, "Oh, I'm an African American," or "Oh, I'm black." I think black encompasses so many beautiful things, and mm. I remember going to schools and being around people that were like, she's not black, she's African-American. Mm, and I'm like, mm. okay, but I'm black though. Yeah, at the end of the day, right? <laughs> yeah, and I like being black. Yeah. I don't think that there's any wrong with anything wrong with being black. Do you ever use African-American to identify yourself? Only when I'm filling out paperwork. Okay. What about your folks? Black, African-American, interchangeable, but Okay. Yeah. Grandparents? Yeah, yeah. 
All Same. right. So they stay in the black African American mm-hmm. area. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. And um, where is home for you? Is New Hampshire home for you? You from Absolutely New Hampshire? Absolutely not. Um, and some you, people might say I have a twang even on here. Sometimes it's weird hearing myself talk. Um, Memphis, Tennessee is home. Originally, I was born in Texas, but we migrated back to Tennessee, which is home for my parents when I was like nine months. So it's always been home for me. And how many years did you live there for? Um, 18 years before I left. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And then, so take me on your journey from 18 through your 20s, not year by year, but a general overview. So I stayed in Tennessee. I went to college at Middle Tennessee State University. So I was up the road about three and a half hours, right past 30 minutes past Nashville, was there for four years, came here for a year, went back to teach and receive my master's, left there, went to Chicago. Then I'm back here. In New Hampshire. In Exeter, New Hampshire. All right. And you are claiming New Hampshire now as like... I never said that. Hold on. You identified <laughs> as black. Oh, yeah, because I'm black here. Woman in New Hampshire. Yeah, because I'm here. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so take me on your journey here. So you lived in the South, mm-hmm. deep South, mm-hmm. uh, lived in the Midwest, and then in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Like, Can you contrast those experiences for me, please? Sure. Particularly um, from the vantage point of being a black person in these different spaces. Like, what have you noted? as differences in black culture in those different places? Well, I think that the first time that I came here, which I, I will backtrack, but I like to tell stories. The first time I came here was in 2012 to 2013. And I remember that was the first time that counting was serious for me. And I know that that is a theme that a lot of people aren't particularly used to, but when black people get into a room and there's not a room with a lot of people that look like us, we begin to count like, how many of us are in this place? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so I didn't realize that that actually hadn't, like I had been counting, but I didn't know that other people had recognized that like, oh, I see you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in the South, we do this thing where we communicate with a head nod or, hey, how you doing? We're mm-hmm. very friendly in the mm-hmm. South, yeah. regardless of what cultural background you come from. But when we see other black people, we speak. When I moved here, I was like, that is not the thing. I remember speaking to someone in Portsmouth, like doing the head nod. And I got the craziest look in the world. And I was like, did I just offend you? (laughs) Like, I am so sorry. Hold up, you nodded and you didn't get it back? No. And like, it was bad because Portsmouth is not that big of a place, right? So you walk down this street, you do the head nod, nothing happens. Then you have to go back up the street. You see the same person. And so you try it again. Like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, yeah. And when I said, hey, how you doing? It was like looks to the left, looks to the right, like this person looks down and keeps walking. And I'm like, all right. Man or woman? It was a man. Okay. All right. That's unfortunate. It is very unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm always giving people the nod. In Walmart. Do you uh, get it back? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'll keep looking at you till I get it back. Okay. Yeah. Not to say you did something <laughs> wrong, but um, I have yet to be spurned. Hopefully I don't. I'd feel really bad. I'd be upset actually if I... <laughs> You I know, mean, yeah. I kind of I, I kind of found it upsetting. I think yeah. that was when I realized that the community isn't the same, right? Mm. It's like in the South, I think that when people think about the identity, I actually even heard it here um, when people are talking about racism or their experiences um, with dealing with black people in New Hampshire. It's like, oh, it's not as bad as, as it is in the South. And I'm like, are you crazy? I know how the South gets painted for the experiences from long come past and where we are now, but... We're kind of a family. Like yeah. we're a little bit more friendly down there. Like, you know, you'll say what's up to someone or I can distinctly remember growing up, like my mom doing our hair, right? Us going to church and people stopping my mom in church and saying, oh my gosh, how are you growing our hair? What are you using? And that being more like a village moment, right? Like just 
seeking advice from someone else without looking at them and being like, oh, she thinks she's all that, you yeah, know, yeah. going in the grocery store and coming out and people stopping in their cars like, oh, my gosh, that dress is so pretty. Where'd you get it from? And having that community. So I want to speak to that um, because I grew up in uh, the Northeast, Boston, Massachusetts, for the most part, and um, never really ventured into the South until I went down there. Uh, I went to Virginia, That's mm-hmm. the furthest South um, I went. Um, I went into Virginia with my high school sweetheart at the time, and uh, we were visiting uh, the school that she was going to ultimately attend, uh, the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really know any differences in culture um, initially Mm -hmm. uh, at UVA in particular, although on my way to the school, we stopped at a restaurant, which was on the side of the road, like an hour away. And it legit said on the door, no coloreds. Wow. And I I couldn't believe it. I was like, yo, really? Like there, I'm seeing that sign. Like that's like in history books. Yeah. Um, But anyway, um, when I went to go visit her during the school year, that was when I noted a difference um, in the way that black folks carried themselves in the South versus the North. So Mm. in the North where I went to school at Clark University, and this was across diaspora, folks, black folks would roll out of bed in their sweats, pajamas, whatever, whatever was most comfortable and go to class. And we were all comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. When I went to visit my girlfriend at UVA, you're shaking your head yeah, right now. Yeah. There was no such thing. No. The formality down there was so serious. It's like folks went to the salon, now women went to the salon before class oh, to yeah. get done up. I went to a fashion show. I mean, I was like, wow, the formality is serious. So as you were talking about church and the dress and the comments about your appearance, that is what struck me initially when I went into the South, but please continue. Yeah, that's, that's what it's all about. I know that my mother and I were having a conversation a couple of days ago about how there was so much pride amongst other blacks, right? Yeah. It's just the old thing. Like we want to look great too. We want to look good too. We take care of ourselves too. It's not like we're really that much any of a different, right? Yeah. But yeah, you can't, you can't roll in any university in the South rolling out in your sweats. I remember getting to school <laughs> past Nashville and it was almost like a competition. Now I went to a PWI, but the black community was a community. We were a family and you better not come to any of your classes looking just, you know, thrown together. <laughs> My mom used to say this one phrase all the time. You're not going in that school looking like a throwaway because what are they going to do? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think about some of the experiences of the South and how that shaped me and how I still carry that identity of who I was there here. Right. Yeah, yeah. I remember growing up and thinking, oh, my gosh, I got to get out of Memphis. Like there's just so much wrong here, you know, because you haven't been outside of where you grew up. And yeah. then taking that journey is like, you know, at home is looking like a golden castle right now compared to where I am. But those experiences help shape where I am today in yeah. regards to being here and being able to navigate this space and and not lose my head because I was used to it, you know, experiencing some of the things that I think that right now the rest of the country is up in arms about, like, we need to be better and we need to change this and it's too old. You're absolutely right. But when you are in kindergarten realizing the differences and being able to tell this subtly without your parents ever having to give yeah. a name to it yeah. is a different experience. Yeah. Um, my intro into race uh, happened up north in Canada, actually. The story I always tell that a lot of people know um, happened to me in Montreal, and then I had subsequent um, encounters um, in the Northeast. So it's not to say that Northeastern encounters are worse or whatever, but 
um, I had some pretty intense stuff happen in Canada. And so when people are talking to me about, yeah, you know, if something happens here, we're going up north. We're like, we're escaping into Canada. I'm like, yo, um, I lived in Montreal for a period of time. It it can be bad up there. Heck, I experienced some stuff in Vermont. But I want to pivot back to something in terms of other uh, cultural um, differences I've noted. So at the beginning of the episode, I referred to you as Courtney Church Shaw. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, when I encounter um, black folk <laughs> from the South, there's this gift of delivery and how they speak. And it automatically conjures thoughts of church. Mm-hmm. And I remember asking you once, are you the daughter of a preacher? And you told me that you were. Yeah. And so can you... Speak a little bit about that, please. <laughs> yeah, my mother got ordained in 1996. Every time I tell someone like, oh, my parent is a pastor, the first thing they're like, oh, your dad. And I'm like, nope, my mother, yeah. um, which, you know, is its own little story all by itself. But yeah, I was raised in a Pentecostal, very um, devout Christian home, but it was never from a religious aspect. It was more of a relationship. And mm. I thank God for that experience because I watched people you know, fall in and out of religion very fast of an identity, what it meant to be Christian to them and had a very loving experience through what they went through and how that applied to their lives and how they didn't want their children to repeat that. And so, yeah, my mother's a pastor. She's pretty dope. And while we're on the topic of your parents, I learned something about your folks earlier today when we were prepping for this episode. And I was wondering how I was going to get that in. And so this provides a natural opportunity for you to talk a little bit about your parents and um, their experiences in the South. Yeah. So my parents were actually the first um, bust into the integration system. And I say that because um, in the early or late from 68 to 72, that's when the busing happened. And so they shut down all of the black schools and bust them into PWIs. And it was a different experience for oh, them. Hold up. They didn't integrate the schools. They didn't integrate the black schools and the white schools. They shut down the black, black schools. schools yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And just shipped them out. And so, you know, I was recapping with my mother about their experiences because, you know, there were so many different things that she had told me about growing up because, you know, we are black, we identify as black. But the minute that someone sees me, the first thing is like, oh, what are you mixed with? Oh. And I'm like, I'm not. But let's have a conversation as to why you think that. Um, But that her experience was when she was at the all black school, because of the way that she looked, she was often ostracized or picked on. So she was telling me, you know, her being bust as crazy as it sounds actually saved her in a lot of ways because she was entering into a grade where it was getting dangerous for her um, because of how she looked. Now, my parents grew up both grew up destitute poor. They met each other when they were at this um, all black school. My dad ended up going to another high school where he played basketball. He was the it man. He was the first black CHS, which or Mr. CHS, which in the South, we have a lot of superlatives. So that was the first time they ever had like a basically class black person. And that was class of 73. What does CHS stand for? So Carryville High School. So you were oh, the okay. like if you were the Mr. School or Mr. PEA here, right? Yeah. That would be the one kid that would be set apart that had it all. He had the grades, he had that, you know, the athletic ability, but he was voted by both black and white students to be that first. And please tell me, uh, when you say it started to get dangerous for your mom at some point, um, this was among black folks. Yeah. Okay, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, please? so um 
it was just based off of the way that she looked. I mean, I think that was before the whole like brown paper bag thing was happening in the South where it was like, you know, if you're lighter than a paper bag, they would try to tell you that you had maybe like a one drop. Like there was something with the bloodline that had been, you know, purposely altered with or for the sake of, you know, either somewhere down the line, there was someone white. And being at an all black school, obviously looking a little different, even though you're poor and you may not have the best clothes was still like a thing. And she told me about this girl that came in front of her face after she had got her hair done for pictures and was like, who do you think you are? Really? Yeah. And my mom, where their school was, she was probably like 500 feet. We grew up like on a farm, like my grandparents had a farm. And so she was down the street with a house full of her siblings and her parents. It was like maybe a two bedroom house with like five kids because i think my uncle hadn't been born yet so like six okay so very very small but having that experience and she was like you know sometimes it would be very it would just be very dangerous especially if you were like the captain of the dance team or rotc which she was you know she started to get picked on a lot and so i think that that's also what influenced my mother to put me in a private school when i got almost to high school because it would have been a similar experience for her Sure, yeah. because the school system changed in the South. So at one point I was in public school that was optional, which means it was kind of like a gifted program. They had changed it. Everything went to city and my mom was like, no, I got to pull you out. And to be clear, just in case folks are wondering here, was your mom getting picked on because she was light skinned? Yeah, because she was light skinned. Light skinned? Yeah, no, not the extra (laughs) D. But it's funny that you say that because that's most definitely it, right? There's a, I, th- I think that there's something that a lot of people get amongst the black community is that there can be somewhat of hate spewed and it's not like to the extreme of people saying you're killing your own kind. It's nothing sure. like that, yeah. but there can be inner jealousy, especially when there's not a lot of opportunity. Yeah. You know, at that time it wasn't a lot of opportunity to do too many other things. And I'm not saying that you're, you know, immediately going to turn to violence, but that was her experience. My dad, on the other hand, um, is actually lighter than my mom, but he didn't have those experiences, but he's also six, six. So I don't think anybody was trying to mess yeah, with my dad. Yeah. Yeah. Was yeah. he brolic too? Six, six? Nah, like, he was like pencil thin. Okay. That's where I get it from. He was oh, just okay. tiny, yeah, but yeah. still, you know, not that not happening. Did he have a nickname? Did they call him tiny? Like as an oxymoron? Nah, nah. He was just rod. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just want to go back to the, the, the first time I think that I even recognized what racism was for me in my experiences. My mother never let me spend the night over people's house, period. That was just my experience. Like, who all going to be over there? I don't know nothing about their parents. Like, no. And I understand why. My parents were the same, yep. Yep. Yeah, and I understand why. The more that I have conversations with my parents, the more I realize why they parented the way they did. They didn't always tell you the trauma behind why they were telling you no. Yeah. Um, But now that I can handle it, they do. And I remember going to, I got invited to this girl's birthday party. I thought we were really close friends. She was white. I must have been nine years old. And I remember us all going over to her house and everybody was there. And I remember her telling me, hey, you got invited here tonight, but you can't spend the night because my dad doesn't like black people. And I remember for the rest of the night, I just sat there like I had felt this feeling before I knew what it was. But that was the first time it made it real for me. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, like this is someone that I'd played with since second grade. I thought we were really close. Um, But that was when it kind of drew the line in the sand for me. And I was like, this is this experience. And I had it so many like more times after that. Um, And it never necessarily got better. But it was one of those things that really helped me understand people in a deeper way. Yeah. And it's like I said, it's a second language in a sense that you don't necessarily have to know if there is 
language associated with, if there is a certain body language associated with it at all. It's just a feeling that you have. And it sounds crazy to anybody else because you're like, you walk into a room, someone looks at you a certain way and you're like, yeah, that's that's racism right there. Mm. And for a lot of people, they don't understand. It's like, well, they do this and they do that. And it's like, no, but that feeling, yeah. that face, that facial yeah. expression, your body language, all of those different things. You know, my background is in holistic health. I don't just look at one aspect. I look at all of these facets of what makes up a person, right? Yeah. And it's like, there's so many different things that, that say that without saying that, sure. that I had yeah. to learn. And it's frustrating that I think that we're in 2022 and it's still happening, but it got indoctrinated at such a young age for me to know what it was that it's just like now my job is to navigate spaces of young minds that are having to deal with this and process that feeling and not not let it be anger. Because in a lot of ways, I think that when you encounter a racist situation, that's exactly what that person wants out of you is that rise, that response, and they do not deserve it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't deserve that. And I think that we deserve more happiness in our own regard of maintaining that peace and what that looks like for us. So there's, like we were talking about earlier, there's reasons why I don't walk everywhere in Exeter. Or I don't walk certain places I will just drive. Because it's safer for me and it's not safer in a sense that I feel like I'm going to be in a violent situation. But if my peace will be disturbed, then I'm not safe. Yeah. 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 Tell it. My heart hurts hearing that story. I just have this vision in my head of you as a nine year old, not knowing what to say and struggling to continue being at the birthday party. Yeah. Not being it. Well, let's see what 20 years ago. Cell phones. Did you have a cell phone where you were able to call home? No. And tell them to come pick you no, up. No, this was yeah. in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're old. Yeah, yeah I am. Yeah. <laughs> Those grays cometh. It's okay. Yeah. No, but that that hit hard. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times when um, I talk to black people about how they came into their racial identity, we all have a story along those lines, like something deeply painful that happened at a young age. Well, for me, it, so it was one of those, like that was one of the stories. The other thing was I was so upset at my parents for, so in the fourth grade, I got taken out of public schools, right? Cause that's when the changeover happened. I was at this elite, like optional school. It was great. I was learning things. I was speaking German, Swahili and French in the third grade. They changed the system. I ended up going to this private Christian school. It was primarily black. I had a blast, but I also met more of my black identity there, right? Um, Because I was experiencing a lot of diversity at the public school. But I remember that only went to eighth grade. And my mom was like, hey, we've got to get you prepared for high school. I'm going to take you out and put you in the school that's seventh through 12th grade. And that was a school that was mainly white. And it started all over again. It was, I remember getting called the N-word at my locker And I remember being young enough to understand because I might have been 13 or 14 at that age that, again, not having such an emotional response to something that I don't identify with is the best way. And just, you know, getting it off of my my shoulder. But I remember going home to my parents and complaining so much and then spending time with my grandfather, who was born in the 30s and hearing his experiences Mm. and then hearing my parents experiences about being bused into the integration system or like my dad being pulled over. Um, and taunted and interrogated by the police. And had he responded in a certain way, I wouldn't be here to have to even share the story. Right. And so how all of these situations mimic each other in such a way. And then knowing what I know about the things that we learn and the things that we pass down to generations through our bloodline, it's like in the most part being able to navigate these spaces, like it started with my ancestors. It's in my DNA, you know, 
So it's one of those things that I often think about before I get ready to complain. When I deal with it, another moment when it happens, it's like, okay, but how did I get here? Because it, it took a certain amount of people for me to actually sit in the seat as far as my lineage. And if I continue to trace that back, they went through some pretty horrid things. And that's not to justify how I may have it better or those experience, but it's a reminder to let me know I can keep going. Absolutely. I'm thinking about how um, I came to learn about the strife of African-Americans in the United States. Um, my family is from Haiti and my parents migrated here in the early 70s. Um, and by then the United States that they were experiencing up north was a United States that African-Americans had fought to create for us. So like integration, school integration, the sort of schools that I could go to and whatnot. But I didn't learn about any of that history until I got to the latter years of high school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when I learned that history, the reverence that I came to have for the African-American community, particularly the elders, unraveling American racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have a particular appreciation for elders. And so when I encounter issues and situations like you, I'm thinking about there are people before me who had to deal with a lot worse. I think I could find the wherewithal to manage this particular situation. Yeah, a couple of years ago, um, my grandfather passed last year in May. I started recording our conversations in 2014 about his experiences because, you know, I sat with it and I sat with those ideas of like, how could I be so upset? Why was I so angry? And I was like, let me revisit that. So I started recording our conversations. And, you know, this is a man that has witnessed so much, but also got to witness, you know, a black man being the president. Right. Yeah. And so but I remember asking him, like, why didn't you have like revenge on your heart at this point? I was like, why are you like, how are you able to just function so subtly with the things that happened? Because he started to unpack a lot of what he had experienced and his, he said one word to me that made all the sense. I had to survive yeah. that word survive. Yeah. So it's like in so many opportunities, there's so many different things that you could have done, but they were seeing people die for what they would consider now their freedom, right? They yeah. were seeing people die for their name, for their identity. Um, and it, it just taught me so much. It's like, man, I'm no longer surviving. I'm thriving. So it's a choice to do with that what I will, right? And the ability to survive and weather all that, tying back to um, this church matter <laughs> that I bestowed upon you at the beginning of the episode, and you come from a, a family of church folk, mom being a, a, a pastor, um, that spirit is what like gave people the strength, the fortitude mm -hmm. to, to fight and battle. Would you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. And I think that you know, it was it was so much joy. Like my grandfather had so much joy about his life and we would talk about it and I would have to like, you'd be like, all right, I'll see you later and step outside and start crying. Cause what he identified was being happy to me was like, oh my gosh, like that, it's just crazy. Yeah. You talked about um, your grandfather experiencing Barack Obama uh, when the presidency in 2008, I'm, I still remember the night coming home from a basketball game. It was my second year as a um, head coach. Uh, we had just, I think, yeah, we, I, I think we got our doors blown off by this team. That wow. night. But anyway, I, I got home and, um, and it was clear that Barack was going to win. And I still remember that feeling because up until that point in my life, 
the idea of a black president literally was a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there were all sorts of skits on it. I can think of the Richard Pryor skit right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, but please tell me about how that experience was for your granddad, your family, you. Yeah, I mean, it was to me, it was great. I was in college at the time. and I remember how excited the entire black community was when we found out that he won. But also that very same night we had like a racist encounter on campus where someone had his face carved out on a pumpkin with the noose hanging from a tree. So it was like we were super happy. We knew that was coming. Um, That happened in like, you know, the election process, um, losing people. My parents were I think that they were excited, but they held a certain amount of fear associated with it. And then with my granddad, I distinctly remember him telling me, like, you got Martin Luther King, you got John F. Kennedy. It was like, I can't watch this, you know? Wow. And for me, that made me sad. Yeah, yeah. Because you found happiness in your experience, but also what that let me know is you've watched too many people die for this experience. And so he believed Barack was going to get popped. Yeah, a lot of people Yeah, he was like, all they did was elect that man so they could kill him. Mm. Was he excited about Clarence Thomas being elected to the Supreme Court? (laughs) No. Mona Lisa, can I get a date on Friday? And if you're busy, I wouldn't mind taking Saturday. Round up the posse Fuji coming around the way. Paying homage to Wyclef Jean and the Fugees, Lauren Hill. Uh, That was a group that I appreciated tremendously growing up. Were you up on the Fugees, Shahizzle? Yes, that brings me back to high school. <laughs> that, does, that age, does that date me? No, no absolutely not, because um, that album dropped when I was, well, um, the score, which was the, the Fuji's second album, dropped when I was a sophomore in high school. So that was about 96. But Mona Lisa, I think, was on an initial album that they had, and that um, dropped when I was in middle school. At the time, it was a big deal that, Wyclef and the Fugees, especially for Haitians, because mm-hmm. for the longest time we were the butt of jokes. You know, people would say, and I'm talking like other Black people, African Americans would come up to me like, hey, you got HBO? And it's like, oh, yeah, I got HBO. Oh, you got Haitian body odor? So it wasn't, yeah, that was a thing. And there were a lot of Haitians who were ashamed of saying that they were Haitian um, because of all these jokes and stereotypes and the voodoo jokes and and whatnot rather than say they were haitian they would say that they were jamaican or something else in the diaspora yeah yeah and actually a quick story to share and then um i will pull you into the episode some more my bad y'all i know y'all were waiting for dr lee but i i got a story to tell after i left canada when i was around five or six and started school in the united states I went to the Thomas J. Kenny School in Dorchester, and I was in ESL initially. Most people don't know this about me. So I learned English mostly in school. And to my surprise, I had beef with the other Black students at the school who were Black Americans. So I went from having beef with white kids to having beef with Black Americans because I was Haitian and I was different. And so every afternoon in the schoolyard, we'd literally be fighting, like go to the side of the building and just fight. Mm. Um, And I loved it. It was a thrill for me. I'd come home some days lumped up and my mom's like, you're fighting again. And I'm like, yeah, but I loved it. What a rush. (laughs) 
But uh, anyway, yeah, so I, I learned early on in my life that there there are some nuances around identity, particularly race and ethnicity. For you, I'm wondering, as an Asian woman who identifies as Taiwanese, like when did you start encountering other Asians and how were those experiences? Well, don't forget, I grew up in Taiwan. So, you know, I think I encountered Asians the second I was born. <laughs> like we, um, and then we moved to L.A. and there was certainly a lot more diversity where I was and um, being exposed to other Asians was also uh, other people of color in general was just the norm and other Asians didn't really stand out for me. What stood out for me was when I got to Columbus, Ohio. And, you know, now we're in a predominantly white space and just people of color, the numbers of us are getting smaller and smaller. And so now I can look around the room and say, well, how many other Asian is in the room? And oftentimes I'm the only. Mm. And so that's when it starts to, I get to, I noticed it more. But to be honest, when I became more, and I'll use the term self-conscious yeah. about being Asian and then in encountering other Asians, was specifically around other Taiwanese folks. There was a, and I think that speaks to more of my own identity development and journey I've been on. But I always worry that I wasn't Taiwanese enough mm. in, um, in front of other Taiwanese, particularly yeah. folks who moved to the United States a little later. Uh, they were older when they moved here. And so I always worry that they thought I was too Americanized yeah. and not Taiwanese enough. So I noticed myself being more self-conscious and that's popping up for me again. Um, so, you know, that I have two young children and I've decided to um, make sure that my kids are enrolled in Mandarin classes. And so now every Saturday we actually go to Durham, New Hampshire, and my kids are in Chinese school. Yeah. That's and so cool. here's now a lot of Mandarin speaking, Chinese identifying, Taiwanese identifying families yeah. and I get nervous <laughs> why why um it's the same thing is that like oh how do they perceive me am I too do they are they going to think I'm too Americanized yeah, yeah. you know here you know my kids are just learning to speak Mandarin and I still struggle with some of them tougher words myself, just, yeah. you know, because I've been yeah. in the States for majority of my life now. Yeah. So I just remember, I just noticed that even showing up now at my age, you know, um, recognizing like, oh, there it is again, you know, wondering how I'm perceived. Same. Yeah. I have the same issue around my Haitian relatives when they visit. And let me not even say just my Haitian relatives when they visit from Haiti. I also have this issue um, with other young Haitian Americans, but I don't want to get too off track. Let me pull it back. Um, so the reason we're talking about um, ethnicity in this episode is because of my conversation with Courtney Churchshaw, and I wanted to specifically um, highlight the Black experience in a different sort of way. And I wanted her to speak to some of the differences in the African-American community um, in the South versus the North. And so here we are, uh, Dr. Lee and I, reflecting on that conversation. And as you all know, for those of you who um, tune into the Identity in Me podcast regularly, Dr. Lee joins me to offer her professional insight or her specialized insight on uh, my conversation with the featured guest. So with regard to the 
conversation with Courtney. What did you think about how she identified? You know what I appreciate about Courtney is um, her confidence. I think that comes through in the way she talks about herself. And I have the privilege of knowing her and where we work. And I see the way she talks to students, for mm-hmm. example. And there's just a, a, a there's something about her, right? There's this confidence that she's able to present that I re- very much think is a gift and, and um, a gift for all of us who's able to receive that. What stood out for me for her is also her willingness and flexibility to give her identity, um, to be nimble with her identity. You know, she can say, well, I identify as a Black woman in New Hampshire. She also can speak to what it's like for her when she's in the South. And she can also speak to what it's like for her when she's in Chicago. And I love that because she's flexible. She's not trying to uh, pigeonhole herself in one particular category. She understands that her environment can influence how she's being seen and then hence experience. And, and I think it's because of her confidence that she allows herself to have that flexibility. When I work with young folks, there's this urgency to define as this, as if it, if they, once they define, they're good. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. what I try to talk to young folks is that, you know, like define for now, and then give yourself permission to change your mind or shift or pivot or whatever, um, that it can be fluid. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You didn't do it wrong the first time or like, <laughs> you know, be a little bit more sophisticated in that nimbleness. And I think Courtney Churchshaw exemplifies that. What do you think about my nickname for Courtney? Courtney <laughs> Churchshaw. Preach. <laughs> right? And... I noted that about her. So this um, self-assured way that she presents herself um, comes across in how she communicates. And very early on, I'm like, she must come from the Black church tradition, Mm -hmm. like folks who communicate very clearly um, and can stand up on a whim and just like really just bring down the house with whatever it is they have on their mind to express. And um, that certainly comes across with uh, Courtney. So among Asian students, let's say, do you find that particular issues come up more with Koreans than it does with Chinese students, than it does with Vietnamese students or with Black students? Uh, Do certain issues come up more with African-Americans versus Afro-Caribbeans or specifically Haitians, Jamaicans, et cetera? I don't think I have noticed patterns that I can quantify by the groupings that you just identified. Yeah. 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 So I asked the question because like, I'm very curious about that. I know in my own experience growing up, right? Like on this podcast, I've made a reference to uh, the Cosby show and how important it was for me to see this black family on television, but I never saw a Haitian family on television. You know, like it it was a, a connection that Um, I was making based on race, but I couldn't relate to anything that was going on in the household, the ways in which they celebrated civil rights heroes. I appreciate civil rights heroes now as an adult, but I didn't learn about them as a child from my parents. And so some of the issues that I was having in school were very much around really feeling completely disconnected from everything. I've been thinking a lot about the racial category versus the ethnic category. You know, when you uh, get an application, you see the racial categories, Asian, Black, White, Middle Eastern, et cetera. And then 
organizations and institutions try to solve issues around like these racial groups. Meanwhile, there are issues that I think are that are coming up that are very particular to ethnicity that are being overlooked. For instance, when I look at enrollment at a particular school, um, when I was in college, 3% of the students identified as Black. Well, when you dug into the data, only like 0.2% of that 3% identified as African-American. And so as I think about these two categories, race and ethnicity, I often feel as though we don't place enough emphasis on ethnicity. Do, do you feel the same way? Yes and no. Uh, I think data collection is tricky. Anyway, I recently had some conversations within my department, you know, when we talk about uh, paperwork, right, when the student comes in, there's intake, and we have all these check boxes, you know, which one do you identify? We're like, check, check, check. And and then you get to the point where, like, the checklists are getting longer and longer and lo- longer yeah, because you're yeah. trying to capture that nuance yeah, as you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Well, if we can appreciate that there human beings can be so nuanced that we are all unique individuals. There's mm. an infinite number of these checkboxes. You're never somebody's always going to feel left out. Yeah. And so there's argument being made that forget checkboxes, leave an open-ended box and just mm. ask the person, how do you identify? And mm. let them let them go at it. Right. Now somebody will say, well, that would be really challenging for data collection and data analysis. Sure. Right. And so I think such data collection is never perfect anyway, but we're talking about nuances. How nuanced are we going to get? And I think about um, my family, you know, there are four of us, four girls. I'm the youngest. And I would say the four of us, if you were to ask us how we identify, it's going to be different. We grew up in the same family. We have the same immigration um, experience. We have all of that. But even the fact that what age we were when we immigrated is very different. I was 10. My oldest sister was 18. Very different experience for the two of us. I don't tend to have an accent. She has a pretty heavy accent purely because she came at 18 and I came Mm. younger. Right. And and that even our accent or lack thereof has colored, I think, our experience and how absolutely interact with us. So, you know, here's a family genetically pretty similar environment pretty similar and yet i would say we're so nuanced just within the four of us so go back going back to my point yes there's nuance but how nuanced do you get i remember sitting in a political science class and hearing my instructor go on about how black people vote for the democratic party overwhelmingly meanwhile i grew up in a household with parents who extolled ronald reagan as an all-time great president I would even go as far as saying the Haitian community that I experienced leaned conservative. Don't get me wrong. Race is a really important part of the equation. Some of the nuances in the black experience that I'm referencing don't change the collective experience we have with racism in the diaspora. I'm simply noting that ethnicity can't be overlooked and it is. The black experience like that of other racial groups is rich in its diversity. Special thanks to Courtney for sharing her flavor of the Black experience with me and to Dr. Sahoy Lee for offering her usual provocative insight. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, keep reflecting. Identity and me. Identity.